This is session four of Technology-Enabled Blitzscaling, a Stanford University class taught by Reid Hoffman, John Lilly, Alan Blue, and Chris Yeh. This class features a guest lecture by venture capitalist Anne Mirico of Floodgate, who is then interviewed by John Lilly. This podcast has been produced by Greylock Partners. For more podcasts, class notes, slides, and videos, please visit greylock.com. All right, so this will be the last, this will be the fourth session we have on the earliest stage of starting up, this uh, organizational scale one. And so today we have Anne Mirico. We're very lucky to have her. Anne uh, is a co-founder of a firm called Floodgate, which is one of the most interesting, um, I think, one of the most interesting funds around. And they invest in a, in a wide variety of stuff. We'll talk about physical goods, we'll talk about marketplaces, we'll talk about biology, we'll talk about math. Um, Anne uh, is probably the most educated person in the room, at least by a long stretch, and she'll, she'll tell us about it. Um, so I'm just going to let her jump in, and she's going to talk about what uh, at Floodgate they see that's interesting and how they think about what they see early stage that they think translates into um, important, durable companies. So we'll just let Anne talk, and then we'll do some Q&A like we did with Michael on Tuesday. So yeah, my talk is uh, called Hunting Thunder Lizards, and uh, Thunder Lizards is actually a term that my co-founding partner has talked a lot about. Um, his name is Mike Maples. Uh, we've been working together for uh, a number of years, since 2008. So just to, to dive in, give you a little bit of background about me. Um, Palo Alto native, so I have uh, grew up here, went to Pali High, um, went to, snuck into some Stanford parties as a high school senior, um, went to Yale Electrical Engineering, went to McKinsey, and then got into investing kind of by chance. A uh, partner at Charles River Ventures by the name of Ted Dintersmith uh, gave me a shot. And we, we actually had this incredible conversation about books and music that we loved. And at the end of it, he basically offered me a job. I just ended up starting working for him um, a day before 9-11. So my second day of work was 9-11, and I got to see um, what happens in venture investing when everything comes to a screeching halt. Um, I eventually ended up at a Stanford PhD. Uh, I got my PhD in the operations research group uh, doing math modeling of computer security. Uh, had the opportunity to interact a lot with Stanford students and really fell in love with the act of teaching. Um, in fact, I'm going to give a plug for my class. Uh, in the spring quarter, I'm going to be teaching MSNE 275. Um, and this is sort of a test run for some of the, the elements of the course that I'm going to be teaching. Um, and then I ended up at Floodgate. Uh, Floodgate, we started in 2008. I was thinking of starting my own company at the time. Uh, and I was told by one of my mentors I should go and find an angel investor who has a lot of experience looking at very early stage things and see what's going on in the real world. Um, I started doing that with Mike once a week. We'd look at companies together. Uh, in the midst of that, he turned to me and said, I think I've accidentally raised a fund. And I think in that case, you should join me. This isn't a venture-backed startup like you're thinking of doing, but it's a backed venture startup, so let's go. Um, and so in... In 2008, I got started. Uh, and these are some of the companies I've been involved with. So um, I had a really great string of beginner's luck. So in 2008, as you can imagine, was a really hard year uh, economically. Um, but turns out it was a great year to become a venture investor because not many people were actually writing checks. And so between 2009 and 10, I actually invested in three companies. My first was TaskRabbit. My second one was uh, ModCloth. And the third one was Zimride, which turned into Lyft. 
And all three of those companies are, I really kind of wax nostalgic about them because um, it was a period where I really had no background in investing. I had nothing to turn to to say this is my track record. And so each one of those founders, whether it was Leah Buskey or John Zimmerman and Logan Green or Eric and Susan Coger, they, they, as much as I took a bet on them, they took a bet on me. And so since then, you know, I've invested in Refinery29, uh, which has really taken off. Uh, Ayasti actually was born in this very building in the math department. And so I'll talk a little bit more about why I think companies like that are significant. And so, you know, what are thunder lizards? This is sort of a central theme for Floodgate. We talk a lot about these animals. Um, they are obviously inspired by, not by dinosaurs, um, but they are inspired by Godzilla. And um, they represent what we think of when we think of entrepreneurs, like the tremendous scaled entrepreneurs that have gone through blitz scaling. Uh, they are born from what we call radioactive atomic eggs. And so there is something, you know, there's a genetic mutation from the day zero uh, with these entrepreneurs. They then swim across the Pacific Ocean um, and have this incredible long journey through lots of dangerous things. They stop off in Hawaii often and then end up in, what, depending on whether Mike tells the story, he says it, they end up in Tokyo. I like, I like the version where it ends up in San Francisco. Um, and he emerges in San Francisco Bay with an attitude and starts to wreak havoc. Um, and we like the older versions of this as well. They, they shoot laser beams out of their mouths. Um, the best ones, you know, they eat trains. They, uh, some of them will eat ships. Um, but what does that mean? You know, why, why does that imagery evoke entrepreneurship for, for me, for Mike, uh, for people we, we talk about Thunder Lizards to? Well, we think about it in sort of four different areas. One is, and probably this is the, the, the most powerful notion, is that they've somehow converted their, their advantage to truly disruptive power. And when I say disruptive power, that, that to me evokes a lot of what we see in Godzilla. Um, you don't see this in Godzilla, but these companies will minimize technical and organizational risk you, or organizational debt. These are the, the things that happen in a company as you're acting quickly, where you are accruing some cost. Um, and great companies will minimize that debt. Uh, you will achieve product market fit. So all of these companies will have an incredible feel for the product, but will also have a pull for their product from the market. It's almost uncontrolled pull of their product. And then lastly, this is something that Peter Thiel has also talked about. They avoid competition. And so, so these are the four things that, that we believe result from the fact that you are a thunder lizard. Um, but thunder lizards are really rare. And this is actually a slide from McKinsey. Um, and I thought this was really fascinating because if you took all of the IPOs that happened between 1980 and 2012, you know, there's about 3,000 of them. But the, the number that was most striking to me was how many of these have more than $4 billion in revenues? Well, it turns out it's only 17 companies. And, and if you can imagine like what it takes to get to be one of those 17, 
those are the truly legendary businesses. Um, and, you know, even getting to an IPO is already exceedingly rare. Um, there are roughly only about 25 companies in any given year that exit at greater than $500 million. And so if you think about that, that is the actual, you know, when you have your exit event, there's only about 25 of those in any given year. And it really doesn't matter what year it is. You might have a slight blip one year, um, but this year looks like it's going to be right around 20 to 25 again. And so when we think about how do you describe what that looks like, right? So we know that they're exceedingly rare, but Floodgate, we invest either really early or way too early. So we are the first institutional financing that happens for uh, a startup company. We're cutting checks between $500,000 and $3 million into a company. And so that means that we need to spot it way earlier than most other larger venture capital firms. And so Mike and I spent a lot of time thinking about not only what do we try to spot, but also as we work with these companies, what's the groundwork that needs to be laid so that when they go on to their next round of financing or future rounds of financing, they don't accrue the kind of debt that could really hamper the company's growth. And so we think about it in terms of what I call the value stack. And, um, and this is really sausage being made. I describe this as sort of stuff that I'm still working on. Um, I, this is the first time I'm actually teaching this in a course format. I've whiteboarded it previously. So if any of you have questions on this, I'd love to get feedback as we go along. Um, if I start at the bottom, this, you know, I call it proprietary power. I used to call it technology. And so this is the place where you get something very unique. It's an insight that you have that then allows you to avoid competition. Um, you go to the next layer and it's product power. That's where you achieve this magical product market fit. Um, and then you get to a point where you have that product market fit, but now you need to make sure that you have a real sustainable company. And then ultimately from that company, you don't want to just have a great sustainable company. You want to have one that dominates. And that's what we call category kings. And so if you can translate the initial energy that you have within your company as a startup into all of these different levels of power, then we believe you have the capacity to become one of these thunder lizards. And we're looking for early signs of that. So I'm going to go into each of these little uh, levels of power. So within the bottom of the value stack, yeah. When you look at a new company, do yeah. you consciously rate them on those four metrics? Do you sort of think, or is it if those the foundation by which you, lenses by which you look at it? Yeah, so I'll repeat the question. Um, do I actually have sort of a scorecard, essentially, is the question, uh, along the lines of all these different dimensions? We don't actually have a scorecard, but these are different levels that we will talk through. And we'll, we'll, we will pretty explicitly talk about what the company has and what the company doesn't have. And oftentimes when we're turning down a company, it's because there's something in there that we feel there's lacking in, on one of these dimensions. 
so if we start with a uh, proprietary power, this is probably the part that I spend the most time because this is probably the most evident at the early stages of a company. Uh, and this is, you know, it could be a technical insight. So oftentimes it's going to turn up as proprietary IP. So a Yosti story is that it started out with Gunnar Carlson, who was the uh, chairman of the math department here at Stanford. He had 25 years of research uh, in topological data analysis. And his graduate student actually turned it into a real product. And from there, they published four papers. Uh, I encountered uh, Gurjit at that time. And then uh, he turned it into a business plan. And ultimately, we, we funded it at that moment. Um, but it was 25 years of research. So when you look at Ayasti, one of the things that's interesting about it is they have technology that is in many ways unassailable. Um, another way to look at it is, do you have access to scarce supply, right? And um, I provide De Beers as a, a canonical example. If you have access to, you know, diamonds, then um, you're probably in a pretty good spot. Um, and so scarce supply can actually be a great advantage. Um, the, the creation of high switching costs, that's uh, Keurig, right? So if I buy a Keurig machine, then I'm probably going to keep buying those little Keurig cups um, because I already bought the Keurig machine and I want my coffee. And so, so that's a really good locking in mechanism. Um, network effects, well, you're being taught you know, by Reed Hoffman, who is probably the king of network effects. So I won't say much about that, but obviously that also creates incredible power and uh, a lock-in for both the, the consumer, but then from, from the network, then you derive even more power and then more people come. Um, the authentic team, when I thought about authentic team, the, the immediate story that came to mind for me was Lyft. And the reason why was... Um, when Zimride first came to pitch for me, um, they had this incredible story of how the two founders met. And so I was looking through the notes from the last lecture where Michael Deering was talking about transportation, right? And I, I love that part of his lecture because it was actually very reminiscent of the, lecture, the, the pitch that John and Logan gave me. Uh, when John talked about why he joined um, Zimride, so Logan was first to get it started, and he, he had this interesting story of how he had joined the transportation board of uh, Santa Barbara because he was convinced there was going to be something there. And then we turned to John and said, well, how did you get interested? He told this incredible story of how when he was at Cornell, he had this professor who did essentially Michael Deering's talk about transportation. And there was this one slide that he put up where he said, look, whenever there's been a huge discontinuous shift in the economy, it's always been led by something that's changed in transportation. He talked about the canals, he talked about you know, trains, and then he talked about the highway system. And John said, I know that there's something next and I want to be part of that. And that's what Zimride's about. And what was interesting to me is as Zimride then switched into Lyft, that story, I've shown that pitch, the pitch for Zimride to other people, and you wouldn't actually know until you got to the product description that the, the pitch was not for Lyft. And so uh, we really look at the authenticity of the team. So when I invested in Zimride in 2010, it took two years for them to get to the product pivot, which got them to Lyft. 
And so that was two years of quite a bit of work, quite a bit of heartache to get to that point. And you can imagine what kind of impact that has. And so we have a strong viewpoint that, you know, all of this, this proprietary power can be unlocked um, pretty quickly in the early stages of startup and something that's probably uh, easiest for us to assess. Any questions on that? Yep. In like today's world where you think about how the barriers to entry have like lowered significantly, technically people being able to work on projects kind of instantaneously, how has that made you change the way you think or place certain emphasis on different aspects of this project? So all the building product is easier, actually developing these insights is not. Right, and so, and I, I think that's what's important to me is there's something that you know that no one else knows, and you know one of the things that was told to me as I was doing research for developing the stack was um, the the founder of Viva Systems, who uh, whose company IPO'd a couple years ago, they had only raised like seven million dollars total, and uh, I think four of it was touched, um, but he said. Every great startup has one fundamental assumption that has a less than 50% chance of being correct, but if true, will give you a 20x, 100x advantage in the market. And I love, I love that kind of notion of what is non-consensus but right for these magical startups. For Viva Systems, it was actually building their entire platform on top of force.com. A lot of people thought that was just a crazy kind of stupid idea. Why would, you, why would you build, how would you possibly build a billion-dollar company on top of Salesforce? He proved that he could, right? And so, so regardless of how easy it is to build a company or build a product, we think that having some sort of insight that says, well, I have access to very scarce supply or I have proprietary IP or I know something about the market shift that's happening that no one else does. That's what enables you to unlock the market power before anyone else does. Any other questions? All right. Um, then we go to product power. Um, and what's interesting is you know, with product, it's being able to achieve that product market fit. But before you, you get here, so if you have, you know, proprietary IP, there's a good chance that you never actually get to product power. And we see, we see examples of that probably all over Stanford, which is you find this really interesting piece of research and you're trying to figure out how to turn it into a startup company. And then someone at some point says to you, that's technology in search of a problem. Right. And so you might have incredible proprietary power, but it can be very difficult to turn into product power. Um, product power is when you achieve product market fit. And, it's, it, and a lot of people throw out product market fit as if, if it's a product that hits any kind of market. Someone in the world likes it, then you have product market fit. That's not product market fit. Product market fit implies market power, Right, it's, it's the market that needs to be large and growing. Oftentimes when you hit product market fit, it feels uncontrolled. Um, in fact, with, uh, with Instagram, there's a great example of that. Um, Mike talks about 
at the, the very first week when they launched Instagram, um, they had this moment where they realized that, and they knew, they had the sense that on the weekends, the, the traffic would suddenly increase. And he knew it was like on a Monday or Tuesday that if they didn't get the Instagram service off of servers and into the cloud, that they were completely screwed for the weekend. And so they worked day and night to get that to happen. And, and they were finally able to get it to be a scalable service by Friday. And, and he knew that at that point, he said within you know, 12 hours of having launched Instagram, they actually had a really good sense that Kevin Systrom had a very good sense that this was going to be a huge hit. And I think Mike was a little bit more skeptical for a while, but he always felt like it was a train whose wheels were coming off. And so the, the question I often get from founders is, do I have product market fit? And the answer to that question is, if you're asking, you don't. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people also ask, well, isn't it true that you can actually create a market if you have a transformative product? And that's true too, but it rarely happens. I think the example that I could come up with was VMware. VMware was so transformative that it created an entire market um, where there really wasn't one previously. Any questions there? Yeah. Are there maybe smaller metrics that maybe you would see clues uh, in the beginning? Because for example, at Airbnb, I know that they did really get that skyrocketing at the very start. They worked for probably a couple of years before they really caught that product market fit. So are there smaller clues that you could see beforehand? I felt like there was actually, even with Airbnb, there was this moment where I think it was a Democratic National Convention where Obama first presented. That was a real moment for them. Like they, there is actually a moment where you start to see that, that grow. I think the place where it can be harder is marketplaces. And marketplaces can actually take a really, really, really long time because it's this very difficult balance of um, the, the supply and the demand. And oftentimes you'll see companies kind of getting that balance wrong in the early days, and it takes a little while for them to really mesh. Um, but I, I think of this as really a binary concept, and there's, there can be early signs. It really depends on what you are, what kind of company you are, what those metrics are. Any other questions? Yeah, I mean, so customer discovery, like, I've taught a lot with Steve Blank. There's the whole sort of process and four steps to epiphany and, and what Eric Ries talks about. I think there's, there's good ways of, you know, just going out to customers and testing out your hypotheses. Oftentimes, actually, I've seen um, entrepreneurs track all of their hypotheses, even in an Excel spreadsheet, and start to say, this is my hypothesis, this is how I'm going to test it, and this is what I expect to see. And it's very much a scientific method. I think the thing that, where that can go wrong is that it's as much an art as it is a science. You have to know when your experiments were wrong, so that the experiment itself could be flawed. Um, it could also be that the, the way in which it was presented wasn't quite right. And so you have to be fairly honest with yourself about what went wrong in those tests. But I do think that there are ways in which you can actually access the customer, 
get in front of them and see if there is an aha moment. Again, with Instagram, it was interesting. They, they said when they were with Bourbon, um, they noticed actually that that you could post pictures, but it was like a five-step process, right? You had to like go into settings, you had to find like this bespoke email address, and then you would have to email your pictures to this bespoke email address, and then it would be somehow posted into Bourbon. But people were actually doing that, right? And they noticed within that stream that that was something they were interested in, and that's why they doubled down on it. Uh, And so oftentimes it's not, what you want to see and what you're looking for, but the things that are sort of outside of that realm that help you notice, oh, that's a problem that I might want to solve. Um, and so oftentimes when we say, you know, when you go in to do customer discovery, you don't want to say, take a look at my product and tell me what you think. You want to ask them about, well, you know, what's your life like? What, is, what are some of the problems that you face? And it's in those conversations that you might actually find inspiration for the real product that you want to build. Anything else? Okay. And then from there, we go to company power. And this is actually um, where when you're scaling your company, you're talking about you know, discovering a scalable business model. You're um, trying to figure out what the cultural values are for your company and what your identity is as a company. Um, it's how you develop your own company narrative, the personality of the place. Um, it's how you develop talent, reward talent, uh, provide career paths for individuals. And it's how you foster communication within that, that culture. Um, and companies that I think have done this really, really well, Facebook, um, but also Netflix is really well known for some of their HR documentation. Um, but it goes way more, way more than... Um, where far beyond what I would say is just HR. And I would emphasize, do you have that scalable business model? Does it make sense today? I would argue that there's lots of unicorns today that are still searching for that scalable business model. Um, and that means that there's a lot of debt that can actually be incurred. Uh, if you don't have the right processes in place, you will actually incur a lot of technical debt. You will also incur a lot of company organizational debt. I see this in my own companies where you, know, you have like eight C-level executives and you're thinking to yourself, how do we get here? Well, it's just organizational debt, right? Um, and then the compensation schemes are really messed up. That's organizational debt. People feel like they don't have a career path. That's organizational debt. Um, and then so these are also, in some ways, you know, when you look at the founder and you talk to them, you can also start to spot, are these people who are thinking about these things, who will be open to thinking about these things, who want to think about these things, um, and how open are they to that kind of conversation? Um, and those are things that we actually do look for in the early stages as well, because again, if we believe that the founder is going to be the CEO for the long term, these are things that they're going to have to grow into. And we want to at least be aware of whether or not they care about these things. Yeah. Can you talk a little more about the signs at an early stage that you look for in founders? Because often this is when you're scaling and you're looking at embryos. So is there anything that you sort of see these patterns about people who care about this later on? Yeah, I think one of the things is actually um, early hiring. So how good are they at hiring and what are they willing to give up to get the best people? Um, 
you know, uh, we have one company actually that has been able to attract like really ridiculous talent from, um, you know, big companies, Facebook, Square, Twitter. And you talk to him about how he was able to do that. He spends a lot of time thinking about not only who he's hiring and what kind of networks they'll bring to the table, but also how they do interviewing. What do they put together for a compensation plan? They think about it in a, in a really rigorous manner, almost just as much as they think about the product. And uh, to me, that, that's, those are early signs. Uh, when I invested in Ayasti, part of the thing that convinced me was that Gurjeet brought on board this incredible product person. And, and he was very open about the fact that there were things that he did not know and that he wanted to know, but he also wanted to surround himself with people who would support him in that. And so all of these types of signals are around what is the type of company you want to build? What's your fundamental values? You know, a lot of the, the founders that are successful are fairly generous with equity. That they, they want people to feel like an owner and not just an employee. So those are the types of things that we're looking for. It's more philosophy rather than um, explicit things that you'll, you'll actually see as signs. It's not metrics driven. And then lastly, um, category power. This from my friends at Play Bigger, uh, which is a, a great organization, um, two guys who are CMOs of companies, but they talk about uh, how do you derive category kings. And um, to me, what is it? it th these are the guys that convert all of these advantages that they have and then create this incredible disruptive power. And in a lot of senses, they will actually define a whole new category because they don't want to compete. They want to be, be the big sort of Godzilla on the block, right? And so I think a great example of that is Netflix, actually. When they came in, they weren't saying, I'm going to compete with blockbusters. They didn't compete. They created a whole new category and then destroyed blockbusters. They destroyed the category and rebuilt it in a way that suited them. Um, and I think, you know, Starbucks is another great example of that who would have thunk that people would want to drink $3 coffee or $5 coffee when you could get it for 50 cents. They completely redefined the buying behavior and enabled a new category to emerge. Um, Amazon's done, done the same thing. Apple's done the same thing. Um, and when we look at companies, one of the things that we think is really powerful is how does the, the founder think about the language that defines the area that they're going into and how do they position their company within that market. Um, if, the, if they feel like they're not in control of that market and they're allowing the market to define who they are, that's something that worries us a little bit more. We would prefer to see companies be more proactive about it. And so those are the, the four elements of the value stack that we look at. And obviously, you know, this is actually probably the hardest to view at the stage that we invest in. But, but in a lot of ways, it, it can actually be the most important. If you can, if you can become a category king, that's how you, um, you capture value the most. Yep. Can the category power ever come before the company power, or is that a bad sign if that happens? No, I think it can. I mean, like you can start defining a lot of that. It's, it's separate in some ways, right? Category power in a lot of ways is external, whereas company power is internal. It's, um, it's how you look internally at your business. 
It's, it's how you build that sustainable business model. Um, some people will try to get to category power by buying their way in. So um, there are companies that will spend a ton of money on customer acquisition and just buy a ton of customers and try to claim category power when in reality it makes no sense from a unit economic standpoint. Right? And so my argument is, at that stage, those are both very important. You need to actually make sure you have a good sustainable business model, and there must be another way that you can actually get to category power. So the question um, we like to ask everyone, okay. uh, and part of this is because Reed is so good at it, uh, is what can you safely ignore? So, I mean, the pitch, one way to interpret the pitch is, well, you should be good at a lot of things, including building a big company and a big category with no technical debt and organizational debt. Yeah. And so at the stage of, um, of sort of zero or one person to, to 15, yeah. what can you ignore? And then, I'm gonna, and then I'll ask, how much can you really ignore it? Yeah, I think, I think it's more what, what do you focus on first and foremost? How do you prioritize? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the, the priority is at the bottom of that stack. Is like, what is that unique advantage that you're building today, that proprietary power? So if it's IP that you have, you know, how strong is that? Um, how do you build that into an increasing moat? If you have a supply chain advantage, um, how do you really make that into a product? Um, I think the second piece you can't ignore is the product, product market fit. How do you get there? Um, those are probably the two things that, that I focus on alongside the team. Like, how do you develop the team internally? So zero to 10, like, you don't, you don't really need to think about, you know, a career path at that point. You don't need to think about uh, titles so much. So the organizational debt probably comes a little bit later. Um, you could actually start to incur technical debt, but a lot of times you don't even know. It's more important to be aware of what the technical debt is rather than seeking to really fix everything before you move on. Because you don't, at the stage that we're at, you, you half the time don't know what's going to stay and what's going to go, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I would say the one thing that I would say is the most important for us is the speed at which you're making these decisions. So, um, you know, when a, when a founder is frozen um, or just needs more data, that's the, the first sign of distress that we see. Yep, and that, that was a theme that came up with Sam and Michael both. The speed, speed of decision-making is, is critical. But um, in, I think any good technologist I've ever talked to knows they have a technical debt as soon as they write the first line of code. Because right. you, maybe you picked the wrong language, the wrong system, or you're right. on the wrong infrastructure or whatever. Um, so um, can we talk about, about the, this idea of authentic founders for a minute? Yeah. And so you told the story about, about uh, John and Logan, and, and their story is incredible. They did it the same, same with me. I remember sitting in their office and talking about the collaborative rides. Um, so did... For you, does everyone have to have an origin story? Or how do you tell if they're, like not everybody has a story that's quite as good as theirs. And so how do you tell whether they should be in it, whether they're authentic? How does that work for you? Well, I really like seeing some sort of tie. It doesn't need to be like 10 years in the making, right? Um, But I do like to see a tie between the idea and why you, like why why is it that you have that unique insight that no one else has? and I feel like for almost every single investment that we've made, there is some sort of tie between that individual 
and why they're why they're doing that that startup. Um, but authenticity can come in a lot of different forms, right? It could be that you are actually the customer, and yep. so you you have a unusual empathy for for the 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 customer because you happen to be the person you're building it for. Um, and then the proof point is how big is that market? Um, but the other, the other could be like, I just see something, like I've worked in this industry uh, for some time and that there's one team member who really understands that market. And, um, you know, it, I, I always ask that question in every single pitch. And so I know that that's an important piece of what we invest in. The question you ask is, how are you? How, why you? Yeah, why you? Like, why is it? And the reason why it's important is, you know, you know this, there's, there's a there's a moment in time with every single startup, and it's it may be even two or three where you march through the valley of death, and and um, in that moment, if this was one of the ten startups you had whiteboarded on the board, like in your office, um, and you knew of like nine other pretty good ideas, but this was just the one that caught your eye in that moment, you are more likely to flee the scene in that first step through the valley of death. And so we would rather have entrepreneurs who, it wasn't, you know, the the 10th idea that they came about, but this was the one and it's pretty much the only one that they want to do. Yeah, I think we, 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 we go out of our way to say this over and over and over. Sam Allman did it the very first uh, class of CS183B and just say, look, um, starting up is kind of a crappy job. Yeah. Like you can't, there's no room for anything else in your life, hardly. And so you only really should do it if you can't not do it. So that, right. that's what I look for. It's like yeah. people who are going to do it irrespective of funders, irrespective of anyone. Yeah. It, just, it just can't stay in. Yeah. That's, what, that's what Michael Deering says. It, it kind of it has to come out. It's, yeah, it's like literally you see it sort of physically leaping out of their body. And so it's interesting how you pitched, how you pitched your stack. And you call it a stack. And you thought it was technology or product. Um, because I think that a lot of people now are, are not doing the technology step. Yeah. They, they start with product. And I, I would actually kind of argue that, that Kevin and Mikey did that too, which is yeah. they, they figured out product first right. on Instagram and then they figured out how to, how to deliver it. Mm-hmm. How do you, I mean, you've got some companies that are more like that and some yeah. that are less like that. So how do you think about technology-led startups versus product-led startups? And is it really, you really need both? No, I don't think so. But but at the the proprietary level, we like to see some sort of insight there. Um, oh, so it's not technology necessarily. No, it's, it's like I would say it's some sort of proprietary insight, whether it's like supply chain or network effects, or it could be um, you know some fixed costs that you're able to get um, uh, capitalized in some way. I think there's lots of different things that can kind of lock you in. That's uh, the customer in in a proprietary way. Uh, I think that piece is important. Um, I would agree most things are not necessarily technology-led. When we originally drew out the stack, I had technology at the bottom and then product. And one of the things I would say was some people just come in at the product power level and you can ignore the ta- technology stack. And in fact, most of the accelerator companies, right, those are ones that are coming in at that product level. Right. Um, and so all you're focused on is getting product market fit at that stage. Yep. And, so, and then I guess the question is, like, when you're looking at technology as an IP, as a driver, so, you know, Gurjeet was one of the first guys I met with uh, yeah. when, I, when I was a VC, started being VC. And this guy is unbelievable. He'll talk about, the, the technology roughly is topologies. Yeah, topology. Topology. Yeah. But how you, how you basically make n-dimensional spaces and pictures of what's happening in your big data sets. And, and um, I, I was left with the, the, uh, um, the observation that, man, this guy is unbelievably smart. 
and he's built this incredibly amazing thing, and I couldn't figure out what the hell you do with it, yeah. and, I, and whether it would matter to people on the product level. Mm -hmm. So how do you how do you get comfort that this amazing technology will bridge to something that is actually useful in the world? Yeah, and I th I think the the tricky piece, and this is. I invest in, in a sector, one, one part of my investments is what I call radical science investing. And that's, you know, PhDs and some crazy piece of technology they have. And the massive risk that we take when we make those investments is that it's a technology in search of a problem. And uh, I think the reason why IOSTI actually resonated for me was in my PhD, I actually had extraordinarily complex data sets. Uh, they weren't big data in, in the traditional sense. The, the files weren't that big, but it was complex. And so it was hard to see, you know, the, the, the actual important parts of that data set. And so I had some empathy for why, you know, being able to take very complex data sets and, and figure out what was inside of it would be important. Um, I think so that, that actually came more from, a feeling, it was more of a gut instinct of, I think there's lots of data sets out there where you have this problem of it's, it's just a big hairy thing and I still don't know how to query it. We also, um, at that same time period, we were creating uh, from an investment standpoint, a thesis on, on big data. And one of the things that I had decided pretty early on was uh, when data becomes that large or that complex, uh, I was less interested in where you were going to store it or how you were going to access it. I thought the big problem would be, what do you do with it? And, and I had gone out and spoken to financial institutions, uh, some pharma companies to see what they were doing. And so from that perspective, I had some insight of, okay, these are the types of data sets they're going to have. And probably you might be able to, to use that in that setting. Um, and so in some ways that was uh, led by an investment thesis. We were looking for analytical uh, companies. Um, there's another company in our portfolio, which is a company called Inscopix. It is uh, literally a microscope you can put on the brain of a mouse and you can see the way it's thinking. Um, and it was a PhD student in electrical engineering. And for, for probably, you know, five years or four years now, uh, we were sort of searching for what's the right business model. And it was, it was one of these things we didn't really know how you turn it into this huge business. So direct to the mouse. Yeah. Di direct channel to the mice. Yeah, you literally plug it into your USB port. I'm seeing you sell to the mice. That <laughs> no, yeah, you could sell, sell the mouse. Yeah. Like, this is what you're thinking. Yeah. Um, but it was, what was really interesting was the guy was really capital efficient, right? So he, he took $1.5 million from me and he never touched it. And he sold something like $18.5 million worth of this device. And, and he, he kept on iterating on like, well, I think the business model might look like this. I'm not so sure. And his advisors would come back and say, well, let's massage it this way and that. Finally, he's come back and said, here's what I think is a billion dollar idea. And everyone said, of course, totally makes sense. And so he's off to the races building a company around um, more like a Illumina for neuroscience is what he believes. And so, so it's a big idea. And he had the, the time to come up with that because he was so capital efficient. Um, so I think, you know, some of these will take very different paths. Mm -hmm. um, 
ideally, they don't spend a lot of money in that in that process. And I think the places where we as VCs have struggled is, is it big R, little D, or is it little R, big D? And your hope is that you're, you're skewed more towards development than research. Yeah, I guess the lesson for entrepreneurs then is you should figure out how to find the right investor. Yeah. Because uh, I guarantee you, like 90, 90% of the guys that, of the people that Gurjeet pitched didn't come at it from a, well, my thesis was about big data, so maybe I'm looking for, maybe I understand or have empathy for other people who are doing it. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I think the other thing is that, um, one of the lessons here is that to assume, not think about investors as firms, think about investors as people. Mike and Ann are both very, very different, just like Reed and I are very different. We have different backgrounds. And to do, if you do a little bit of research, you can find proclivities and interests and it's not too hard. So you just learned a little bit about Anne's patience around science. Now we'll talk about marketplaces in just a second, which also requires a certain amount of patience. Um, but then, uh, and the funny thing is like one thing, you should be careful to assume too much, but you should check interests. So like everybody in the world assumes because of my background in Mozilla that I love investing in web things. And mostly they make me terrified right now because of the rise <laughs> of mobile. And actually a lot of operators who get, if you have operating experience, you mostly are terrified of investing in that because you know where all the, all the bad parts are. Um, yeah, a lot of people, I mean, like, I actually am interested in security. It's what was area of research for me for my PhD. I haven't made many investments in the space because it does still scare me. I feel like I know a little bit too much, but, but that's an area I would still invest in. A, another example is a lot of people say, oh, she, she did optimization, so she's clearly going to love ad tech. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I mean, Reed went through a period where he couldn't really look at a payments company because he had less, you know, echoes of PayPal. Yeah. We, we would do it now. But, um, VCs always say that. We say we would totally do it now, just not before. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about marketplaces because marketplaces yeah. are special. It's a special category of company. Um, so let's talk about, because you have a few investments in you know, yeah. marketplaces. So TaskRabbit would be a marketplace, yeah. a labor marketplace. Lyft would be in a marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, ModCloth is not, right? No, it's, it's um, more e-commerce. Chloe and Isabel is e-commerce. It's, it's more e-commerce, MLM. MLM, okay. So let's talk about marketplaces Winilo and how you think be. about it. Yeah, Wanilo, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do, so we, what we talk about a lot is liquidity. Yeah. How do, you, how do you see, I mean, somebody asked about whether you see signs of whether it's working or not. We talk a lot about are the transactions clearing? Mm-hmm. Does that mean do you, do, you, do you match a buyer and a seller? Yeah. How do you tell? Yeah. And then we talk about how different, if it's local or vir, you know, physical or virtual or, mm-hmm. or whatever, and we, we look a lot at, for inflections in liquidity. Right. How do you think about marketplaces? Yeah, so at the very early stages, uh, what I found is one of the most important pieces of a marketplace is not demand, it's supply. Mm-hmm. And so um, at the very early stages, we're looking at how effective are you at convincing supply to come on board and how loyal are they to you as a platform instead of trying to you know, get a customer and then immediately move around the marketplace as a platform. Uh, and so we're looking at sort of, you know, the supply economics and how, how uh, long-term that supply wants to stay on, on that platform. Oftentimes, because that actually leads to demand. So if you're really great with your supply and your supply loves you and won't leave you, then that means that your demand will come. And so, you know, Lyft is a great example of that. If you turn on your Lyft app and there are no cars, the, the likelihood that you're, you're not going to turn on the app again suddenly goes up, right? And so they, if you look at sort of the way they do their marketing, it's, it's tied to how much demand the, the supply is, is um, 
well-rounded in that area. I think that... Um, and in TaskRabbit, we saw this as well. If you have a number of people bidding on a particular job, uh, all of a sudden, like to the demand side, it looks like a really robust community. And so people are more likely to stay. Um, and so I like to see that kind of uh, supply dynamics starting to build in the early stages because that's the, the leading indicator to what you're talking about in terms of liquidity. Um, because once that happens, then you can bring in that demand and you want to have to be able to, to, to balance it out. But the balancing is, is a lot easier when you just have a lot of people who want to work in that, in that platform. Yeah, I think it probably depends on the depends on the type of company. And I think what we talk about is like you got to have a thesis about whether supply or demand matters first. Mm-hmm. Go make sure you do unnatural things yeah. to get that, and then you you try, you're hopefully going to ratchet it up yeah. on both sides. Yeah, yeah. And so let's talk about in along those lines. Let's talk about Lyft. Let's talk about how can you talk about how the actually let's let's come to Lyft in a second because I think people are going to be interested in it. Um, uh, let's go back to the very beginning again. So what what you like to see in founding teams? Uh, one of the things we asked Sam is do you like solo founders, team founders, two, three, 20? Like what, yeah. do you, what do you like seeing in founding teams and what qualities and what number? Yeah, um, we tend to, and we've invested in solo founders, but I think the healthier dynamic is to have at least two. Um, probably five might be too much, but like, you know, two is, two is usually a good number, three is good as well. The reason why the solo founder can be really hard is I found that it's very lonely. Um, and, and as a result of that, um, it just becomes a situation where you feel like you can't ever escape and you're, you're sort of a prisoner to this startup. Um, and, and, and that, that dynamic, um, can be really, really bad in some ways. Whereas with a, with a dual team, it's not just that you're a prisoner to your startup. You feel like this sort of social pressure to stay in the game. And so um, you can really sort of focus both of them or three of them on the problem. And it's sort of a teamwork element that I think can be really healthy. Um, I also know that like there's no superhuman founder. Like every person has a weakness. And so to the extent that you can sort of round out one another's edges, um, it really can provide sort of different perspectives into uh, the company or the problems that you're facing. Uh, we like to see sort of that yin and yang. I, I look actually even within our own firm and just the differences between me and Mike. And, um, you know, you just look at us and we look very different. Obviously, I'm a woman. He's a man. He's from Texas. I'm from Palo Alto. <laughs> Uh, he's very white. I'm clearly Asian. Like, just like our, our backgrounds, our perspectives can be very different. He's like, he's a lover, not a fighter. I'm more of a fighter. Um, you know, so, so, you know, I'll get mad about something and he'll be like, whoa, that's not a big deal. Like, what are you getting so testy about? And he can really sort of bring me back. Whereas, you know, he he won't want to fight about something, and so you know when we when we were negotiating our lease with our landlord, as an example, like I go I get sent in as the pit bull, and then he makes nice afterwards, right? So so I I like that kind of different roles for different people, but not 
having all of it fall on your shoulders. And I imagine for a startup, it's like a thousand times worse. And so we're looking for that. Um, we do like to look for someone fairly technical on a team as well, because we do think that, that that ends up developing a lot of that proprietary power. And so if you're a team where you have a lot of business insights and you've entirely outsourced your development to Costa Rica, then we probably are less likely to invest at that time. Yep, and so... Interesting. So on the yin and yang about founders, um, there's a lot of different opinions. So like a lot of people say, well, diversity early, and obviously diversity in the long run is good. You know, Keith Ravoli or maybe Peter Thiel is famous for saying like diverse, you want homogeneity at the beginning so you can go fast and not have to fight on everything. Mm -hmm. You guys don't, you guys don't worry about homogeneity. Like I tend to think that homogeneity in sort of types of thinking around vision, around a technology approach, that's kind of important. Is that not, not too important for you? Um, I think you have to have an agreement on vision, right? So, so if you're arguing about everything in the initial days, I think that's, you just lose time. So I think it's, it's more about efficiency. So there, I think there's sort of, sort of fundamentals within a company that everyone has to be in agreement on and moving in one direction. That might be on, you know, technical stack, like we understand this kind of technical stack. Um, but I think uh, diversity in terms of perspective is actually pretty valuable. Um, I don't think you can go from a homogenous organization to a diverse uh, organization later on. I don't, I don't think you can make up for that. Um, I, think, I think it's very difficult to. That's interesting. I, I, my theory is I think, I think you can scale it over time. You, you introduce diversity. If you wait too long, it becomes very hard. But I think if you start, it's interesting. That's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, you talked about hiring. You talked about hiring uh, as an important signal for you as to whether you want to invest in somebody. Yeah. Um, when you hire, when you invest in small, sometimes you invest in tiny companies, a couple, yeah. three people. How do you help them figure out how to hire? Do you? Do you just let them? No, a lot of times it depends on the company. So some some of our companies will come back to us for hiring questions uh, quite a bit, and we're involved in sort of even interviewing or closing candidates. Um, I, you know. The interesting piece, though, that I found is they're asking us for candidates. That's usually problematic. So most of the time, the best companies are all finding people internally. So they're using their employee base to unlock the greatest talent that is latent within another organization that's not even thinking of moving, that's not even thinking of a job. You know, so um, our best companies are the ones where they're just picking talent from like great companies one at a time. They're like snipers. Um, the ones that aren't doing as well, you know, they're, they're advertising, they're putting up, you know, job postings everywhere and they're trying to find inbound interest. Um, and so that's where we try to advise, like, who within your team, who do they know that, like, because there's no one who's going to advocate for a company like someone who's already working there and who's completely bought into the vision. They're going to be able to say, I worked with this person, you know, two years ago, and they were the smartest person I ever met. I'm going to convince that person to come work with us. Those are the, the best hires, um, and so we, we're trying to help our companies move in that direction rather than here's like the recruiters that you use and, you know, these are the job boards that have been most effective. Um, 
those are sort of tactics that you can use as well to augment, but fundamentally the best ones are, are internally found. Yeah, I think that's my sense too, is that there's a, there's a, it's a binary bit, which is you're either, you're either a little bit passive and you're waiting for inbound people to come and talk to you, <laughs> yeah. or you're saying, this is a problem, I have to solve this critical to my business, I'm just gonna go solve this thing, yeah. and figure out how to go find the right people. And we, we have the same thing. I think it's easier in technically deep companies to sniper shot. Yeah. Um, you can say, well, I, I want the best NLP right. search person. Right. You can figure that out. Um, so w- if you have other questions, go ahead and raise your hand um, as we go. I've got a couple more, and then we'll, um, we'll just go from there. So um, let's talk about Lyft for a little while. That's, that's one of the most famous pivots, I think. Well, maybe Slack is more, more famous right now. But, but Lyft's pivot from where they had sort of carpooling. Yeah, Zimride. To, yeah, yeah to, um, to what's a little bit more like Uber became. And actually, it was before Uber. So I think most people don't know this. Like, Uber X was really a copy of, right. of Lyft. Right. And so, can you talk about what the what the pivot felt like and how they knew it was time? And did it feel like a running to something, or what did it feel like? Yeah. It, so, Zimride was one of these companies that was constantly experimenting. So they they knew they didn't have product market fit. So they what was interesting is they had sold this platform to like. All the UCs, I think 100 universities had bought this platform. They'd sold it to, to Facebook, to Intuit, a uh, few corporations. It was for like carpooling, right? It was for carpooling, Lawrence Livermore Labs. And so they had sort of this, uh, one, one hypothesis was if we could get all these campuses on board and you could get geographical coverage of the entire peninsula, campus by campus, then all of a sudden you might have something here in interlinked networks. Um, but that wasn't quite, you know, it wasn't moving fast enough. It was okay as a business. It wasn't awesome. Um, so they looked at uh, bus routes, I think, from San Francisco to Tahoe and also uh, van routes from San Francisco to LA. And literally, like, Logan was renting a van and driving them between San Francisco and LA. Um, we looked at bus routes and enabling it for buses. So, like I'm seeing actually a lot of the resurgence of these original hypotheses that we had as actual individual companies now, uh, which is interesting to see. Uh, but they, they tried all of these things, but nothing felt like product market fit, right? You, were, you would book some people, you get some revenues. It was nice, but it didn't feel huge. And so Lyft was actually just, yet another experiment. They're like, well, you know, mobile's big and, you know, maybe if we do it P2P, it's sort of sharing the ride. Um, I remember the original idea they they pitched, at least me, was we're going to have women drivers and women riders. And, um, you know, by the time I got back to the office the next time and I had been thinking about this, Mike, I think this is too small. They said, oh, we, we've already gotten rid of that idea. We're going to go more broadly. Um, I think there are questions around, you know, is this, you know, how, how, how big an idea is this? You know, how confident do you guys feel? And I remember there's this real moment of intensity and like Logan and John are really nice guys. And so you don't get that. I used to call it, you need tiger's blood. Um, they wouldn't have that intensity, but they showed that intensity in that moment. And I remember Logan was just like, this is really going to work. You guys have no idea. Um, and so the board said, yeah, go for it. Let's, let's do it. And I remember the, um, the first week they launched, we still had Zimride alongside for a while. And um, 
the first week it launched, I wasn't really paying attention, but then a Tommy Leap, who is a Stanford tree, um, he, he came into my office and he was like, you have no idea how huge this is going to be. I like took four lifts in like one day. It was amazing. <laughs> and I was like, seriously, it was that, it was that good. He was like, it's amazing. And he became the super rider. And like, whenever we go to San Francisco, I'd park the car and I'd take lifts around. And it was this kind of magical moment. Uh, but there was this whole Zim ride platform hanging over their heads. And I remember this one walk where uh, I walked with Logan around, uh, around like the, the Giants Park and like we were walking, walking. He's talking about like, what should we do about this additional asset? Like, should we move people over onto Lyft? It's really taking off. Um, you know, how many of the people should we move on to Lyft? And, and at the end of that walk, the conclusion was like, we need to move everyone onto Lyft. Um, and now it would look like a no-brainer but uh, if you can imagine the position that these guys are in, you're bought into a vision, right? When you pitch people and you've like spent two, three years of your life, I think at one point before I invested, Logan said he was going to eat from like this huge can of beans for two weeks because <laughs> they didn't have that much money. Um, like you have sacrificed weekends. You have sacrificed birthday parties and time with friends and family to build this product. And you're essentially coming face to face with the reality that this is, this is not working. And this other thing that you just built over like a couple months is really working. And you're actually going to shut this thing down. That actually takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of, uh, it's, it's this huge come to Jesus moment that I think it's really hard to appreciate. And, and I, I appreciate the courage that it took for them to, to move aggressively in that direction. It's actually hard even to see because there's going to be a bunch of HBS case studies and stuff about Lyft you know, in, the, in the future. And, and what's going to happen is say, well, look, here's this thing that was like moving like this. And here's this other thing moving like this. Yeah. And so, of course, they shut down the thing moving like this and they jumped on the thing moving like this. But we have so many cognitive biases that but are- But it was causal, right? Like It's causal. And like you don't, want, you don't really want to say, this thing that I've been working on, I should definitely look for ways to shut this down. Yeah. So you, you, you actually don't, you, you, it's hard to even see it because you're, in your yeah. head, you're so committed to the yeah. thing. And you've sold your investors on this vision. You've told yourself and your employees this vision for a long time. And so, so I think that, that, you know, when people say pivot and they've like changed the color on a button, it's not pivot. Like pivot is actually like you're going to throw up because of the idea that you have to do it. And so did they just order, did they order a thousand pink mustaches right on that day? The, what, yeah. what happened? Like, do you guys, do you guys remember this? Like, yeah. Lift? All the cars. They had this like outsourced guy. Like he must have been like, oh my gosh, I've won the lottery, right? Like (laughs) all of a sudden they're like getting all these like pink mustache orders. I think eventually they they bought him out and like he's in house. But um, in house pink mustache guy. How big do you have to be before you need a guy in house for your pink mustaches? I mean, you wanted like like you wanted the cuddle stash and you wanted like different versions (laughs) of the stash. So yeah. And um, did they run that by the board or did? Cars just with pink mustaches just start showing no, up. No, I think they mentioned it, and I think everyone was like, "That was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> why, why pink?" So, <laughs> sure. How did the, the management team maintain employee faith while they were going through this pretty unfortunate transition? Good question. Oh well, the, you have to remember. Well, so, the, like, so the question was, how did the manage, How did the team maintain faith when you're changing so much? Yeah. 
So, I mean, like, the entire team was fairly bought into, like, all these experiments that they're running, right? So they were used to, like, oh, here's yet another experiment that they're going to run. Um, I think the big shift was they actually had a sales team that was selling this platform to, like, universities and corporations. And essentially, you have to shutter that and move everyone into, you're going to operate this marketplace, which is... It's so different, but at the same time, I think you get faith from the fact that you have product market fit, right? They were just like, oh my gosh, we need drivers. Like, let's get as many drivers as we can. I think in the early days, we had gone to TaskRabbit and said, oh, you have some of these people who are driving people to airports. Like, is it possible to use some of those people as drivers? Um, and so, you know, it was just sort of this this shift that when when you saw it taking off, I think everyone was bought in. Uh, so how do you think, so given kind of Uber's rise more than Spotlight, how do you think about Lyft and the framework of all the things you were talking about before uh, at the beginning of class? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that they have a lot of the, 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 the elements that we were talking about. One of the things that I've always loved about Lyft... The question was... Oh, so, sorry. So what do you do? Uber teams... Uber, Uber is yeah. kind of, Uber, Uber, it's an Uber. interesting, wait, Uber. we never talk about Uber. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I've always thought about companies as being different, not better. And I think that if you look at it, actually, there are other competitors that, that did this P2P ride-sharing stuff, right? And the reason why Lyft has maintained a, a great advantage here in, in certain pockets and markets is because they're really different. Um, and one of the key differences was when you first took a lift in the early days, especially you had like the fist bump, um, the pink mustache. It wasn't just, you know, everyone's private driver. It was such a differentiated experience, which is part of why Uber had to respond. Um, but that community element has stayed. And if you talk to drivers, if you talk to really long-time users of Lyft, you'll censor what that community element feels like. I also think that um, sort of the irreverence of the brand for a long time has really created a differentiated appeal. I think it's partially why like Liftline works so well. Um, if you're in the city, you try it out. It's an incredible product, right? Like I've met incredible people um, riding on a lift line. Um, I also thought that was, what was interesting to me was it was a, it's a experience that translates generationally. So my dad actually had a, a triple bypass surgery and uh, my mom and I both weren't available to take him to a doctor's appointment at one point. And so I gave him this training on lift. I said, you know, Time comes, you press this button, and someone's going to show up. And, like, you just get in the car. You can sit in the front. You can sit in the back. Whatever you feel comfortable with, you go. And he gets back, and he calls me, and he says, what an incredible experience, right? Like, you press a button, and the nicest man showed up at my door with this, like, beautiful Prius that was newer than mine to take me to the hospital, and he asked me about my life and, you know, if I was feeling okay, which is like not his experience he's ever had in any other setting. And, 
And for, for someone who is 76 or 77 years old to feel that difference, like to me, I, I feel like that's something that's very defensible. Um, I also believe that with them, it, it's, it's kind of, it's a marketplace model. And obviously there's a huge battle for supply. Um, and, and, and they all have their different tactics for winning it. And part of it is become, you know, do you, do you fixate locally? So do we fixate domestically in the U.S.? Do you fixate internationally for growth? And, and Lyft has obviously picked their battle and how they're going to go about doing that. And so it's different. It's a different approach. And I think that's the thing that, that, that we remain optimistic about. Okay, I think we have time for one more, uh, two more questions. Two in the back. Okay. You can arm wrestle. Okay. When you are investing in founders and companies, are you investing in their knowledge about the specific market or are you investing more in the fact that they're quick learners and that they're adaptive? Um, re rephrase. Like the question was, do you, when you invest in founders, are you investing in the fact that they have deep knowledge or deep expertise or the fact that they're quick learners and quick and can adapt? Yeah, like what if they just had the idea but knew nothing about the market? But you just think they have a good idea and think that they will learn. Like which one do you take those factors into account? I, yeah, we, we would, but I think that to some extent, you know, we can wait until another founder shows up who has both. Right, <laughs> um, and so because we're not investing in a ton of different companies, we're actually fairly selective. So I'll, I'll probably make four investments in one year, and so so if you have if you if you have one very deep and you're not, if I were to say which one I would wait more, I would say someone who's going to be sort of fast. Um, and quick learner means more that they're willing to experiment and make mistakes and move on. Um, but again, like having some, some authentic insight into that, that market is better, right? And so we would, we would prefer to see, see both. What, what I would tell you is that the market's efficient enough now. There's enough capital and enough entrepreneurs that almost anything is, is not an obvious decision. And so I, what my experience has been, because the pricing is different or whatever it is, but my experience has been that when, I, when I'm warming up to an investment, I'll fall in love with it, and then I will fall into deep hate with it. And then I'll fall in love with it, and I'll fall way out of love. So I'm like, this is the best thing ever. Like, oh my God, if I invest in this, I might go to jail. And then you vacillate wildly. Uh, and, then, and then at the end, it comes and you make a call, and then you usually throw up after you make the call. And this sounds ridiculous for an investor to say, but it, it's, um, it's nerve-wracking on our side, too. And so I would just say it's, it's a, you, you vacillate wildly. And it's a, it's a mixture of things. And, like, obviously, the more good things you have, the better. But, you know, everything's got issues. Yeah, I think the, the, the key thing is most of these things are controversial, right? So in the, in the early days, if it's not controversial, there's so many people already working on that very same idea that you probably don't have the space right. to win. And so there's something about the business, as I said, that's like it's a less than 50% chance of working. And so, you know, and you'll go through these wild swings of like, of course I believe in it. It's amazing. It's going to totally work. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I'm such an idiot. Why do I want to write a check? And then you go back to but I love it. Like, this is totally going to be amazing. And you have these wild swings. Um, if you didn't have that, and especially within our partnerships, just two voices, 
And oftentimes the best ones are the ones where Mike is like, I don't get it. I don't see it at all. That's the stupidest thing I've heard. And I'm like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And, and, and the opposite has happened as well, where he says, I'm pounding the table. And I'm like, that is so ridiculous. And I'll, make, I'll literally make fun of the idea. And he says, still want to do it. Those are the best ones, right? Airbnb, Facebook, we're both very, very contentious in our partnership. They seem obvious now. Um, last question. So yeah. <laughs> I said no. We, we passed on Airbnb. Yeah. So, well, yeah. It's like you're renting out somebody's room. Well, they had Seems more money weird. off of cereal than they did yeah. from. Okay. Last question. <laughs> so the product market fit is the gate to category dominance. Yeah. But to what extent uh, are you concerned that some things might have a great product market fit in Silicon Valley, in California, in the United States, but not? you know, for a global audience. And consumer software is kind of dependent on a global audience. Yeah. Um, I would say, actually, for consumer, like, U.S. audience... The question is, how much do you worry that product market fit is local or geographically based and not... So we, yeah, geographically based, we, if it's local, we really worry. So one of the things that Mike and I often talk about is, is this a, you know, blue state wine sipper business, (laughs) or does it have a chance of being a beer slammer red state business? (laughs) And we prefer businesses where we can say that's red, red state beer slammer business, because too often, like, we'll find businesses that cater to, you know, the triathlete VC who loves to drink wine, then that's great, but that's really not going to translate outside of, like, a few people, right? So that's something that we do very much pay attention to. International versus U.S., I say we focus pretty much on the U.S. If you can really claim the U.S. market, you already have a fairly large, substantial business. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Anne. Thank you.